It's after midnight and dark and quiet in San Francisco. And it's time for the next episode of The Hyenas, A Tale of India. Chapter 10. But before that, I'm going to read the final paragraphs of chapter 9, which I have revised slightly from the episode last. And here they are. Again, the village is quiet. After a time, however, one of the animals returns. It stands alone in the light of the moon, its ears erect. It sniffs at the air. Then it lopes to the closed door where the man re-entered the hovel and, bending, sniffs along the jam and along the bottom. It snarls when it discovers there's no entry. Then it sits, panting, before the door. The shadows immerse the village as the moon descends to the west. At the end of the long night, the cold bruise of the dawn yellows the eastern sky. There are sounds of shots in the distance. Two, then a third and a fourth. The hyena leaps to a stand, straining toward the sounds, then escapes swiftly into the forest. Chapter 10. Time. It passes quickly, the alternations barely noticeable, unnoticeable, Montal takes his rifle into the twilight. He is surrounded by shadows that leap, frozen at him. His feet are licked by uneven fire, the grasses. His shins are swallowed by weeds. Heading nowhere I am seen by no one everywhere. On the trails, in the forests, by the dank groves, near fruiting and heavy orchards, at the center of low, unremarkable, dry, unfecund fields. I am alone, but no, not alone. Surrounded by brothers, surrounded by enemies. He hears a footfall, he raises the rifle. The sack, like the sun, grows from lightness to heaviness, begins as almost a comfort, ends as a burden banging at his ribs. He takes it back to the city as each sun rises. In the night, beyond the night, through the twilight, the filters of the shadows, the filters of time, the dusk of rebirth, the pitiless and leaning wheel, the curve into curving, the lip of phlegm, the flowering blood, rictus of shame, tangle of branches in the fingers, leaves sticking to the knuckles, sap along the nails, the reduced and softened claws, the swathing rags, 
the molten gauze, the parasite of meaning, the receding eyes, the shrinking lips, the lengthening nostrils blackening into ashless embers, the mucus in the snout, the resplendence of karma, the cast of the flesh, the loss of skin, the erectile hairs singing in the Aeolian air, the pat-pat of paws on the recalling humus, the saturated soil, the garnering of hides, the replacement of futurity by a pall of loss, the lupulin calligraphy of eternity flattened into the print of time, the broken teeth and the puncturing fangs. At once the stroking of the rifle, its rebirth in chattering, the coruscations of winter in the rainforest. Beneath the shark white of the moon, he gathers his brothers in his arms. He gathers with his brothers by their flanks. He shares their flesh, dropping into the animal diatribe of laughter. He stiffens into them. He becomes one of them. He follows them. He escapes with the pack. He pliantly howls. Once he escaped, he is taken on again, the predation of being. Day in reversion, he stalks men, a man among men, a figure among figures, a shadow among shadows. Yet he sleeps. In dreams, the hunting recommences, ghosts parley with the sleeper, their shades commingle, and the roads lead from them beyond the luminous and smoking horizon. There are bold lions sucking their gums, ancient, fatigued, useless, bickering with the cubs, folding their tails about their defeated, wheezing, manging, canicular flanks, their majesty less a remembrance than a recrudescence of an illusion yet earlier still, their glory the folded memory of a mane, their victims swarming them. They help us before the curvilinear horn of the gazelle, the small cloven hoof of the antelope, the sulphurous tusk of the wildebeest, the sensual haunch of the zebra, the hysterical, absurd, kicking heels of the giraffe. There are stunted, armorial, aloof, timorous rhinos, stiff-legged and dim-witted, gazing down their horns at a twitching bush, a flicker of disappearing bird. The glance of sunlight off a wet pebble, the shimmering of oil on a black rifle. They gather in circles, demented orbits, foul nimby, unholy, viscous gatherings of hide, loosening banter, crystal longing, abrupt cavalier charges, Fury at sow trees, madness at banyans, the deep insult of mountains, those horns that rise with patronizing loftiness, with simple and blind superiority above them, throwing them into shadow as the sun rises. All the empire, kingdom, state, nation, 
city, family, the solitary salt of the self. Of the animals he has hunted and shamed, throng about him, pierce him, osmotically penetrate, have become part of him, have become him, he has become them, the hunter over the vast, unregarded plains of India, that vacant country of the mind. He has changed nerves, exchanged skins, intercalated shreds of tissue, splinters of bone, gobs of cartilage, met the worst smoothness of joint against joint, snapped back into the ligaments, thrummed at the tendons, cemented the small crushed bones, each synapse encoded, each lymph node suborned to the illicit matrix, each vein tested, the capillaries meeting in the brightening darkness of the skin. He has a difficulty sleeping through the day. The sunlight pierces his lids, troubles his eyes. He reaches out, covers his eyes with his hands. The light penetrates them too. He can see the pink nimbus of the flesh. He can sense the bone. He turns over and pulls the sheet Dara has left him over his head, but it is of no use. Now he is suffocating. He can feel his breath not hot and clammy along his breast, wandering into his armpits. The trickle of sweat along his belly, his thighs are dank, his flanks are speckled, and the light pierces the sheet like air. And always through the shadows of late afternoon, he can see the broken shadows of the forest, the fragments of bough and twig, the leafy bent patches of grass, the puddles of moonlight lingering like spilt milk beneath the trees, the scratched and gnarled paths, the liquid squares of field, the wretched polygon of an orchard, the clustered emptiness of the groves, and always, always the ridiculous, chattering, tittering, absurd packs of the scavengers disappearing into the undergrowth the bushes trembling in the subtle shades of darkness behind them. He throws off the cover and stands, sweat flicking off him, and goes to change the rags around his face. Does he suspect anything? How happy I am. How long? Like swift alternations of midnight and noon, these thoughts flux and reflux through her. Diffraction of fear and joy through the jewel of her desire. She stands near the doorway leading to Montal's room, listening. I'll go in. No, I mustn't. But I want to feel in between my thighs again. I want to smell the gauze on his face, his terrible rags. She hears him stirring. She retreats barefoot, running on the balls of her feet to the next room. I'm going out of my mind. She laughs and then looks in a mirror. The face that meets her there astonishes her. Is that Dara, that open flower, that wound? Are those eyes mine? They are so open, those lips. 
could they be mine? They caress each other. They open that cheek, forehead, those eyebrows. Now I don't look like an American. No, what do I look like? My hair is falling. Nothing stays in place. It's exploding from my head. I don't look like a mannequin. I have never looked so beautiful. Beautiful? I am not beautiful, but I'm beautiful now. There is no rouge on now. It is all smeared on Montal's rags. What is left is the open flesh, the white gash of her face, the broken mask of her face, the naked, helpless, unendurable face. She raises her hands to her face and caresses it, covering her eyes with her fingers and gazing out of the forest of her hands at the hidden animal that stares back at her. Each day is a night prolonged. Each night she lies with Ashok. He is easier now that the hyenas are dying. He curls her toward him. She does not resist. She does not want to resist. She's hungry for him. He's a power that abducts her. He's a future, a web of steel that wraps around her shoulders, two wings that clasp her, two wings by which she soars beyond the village of darkness and peace where time revolves suspended between sun and moon, monsoon and thirst, famine and plenty. Where the ties of labor and days once linked her to all the villagers and her family secluded hidden from the delights and dangers of the city, wedded to the simplicity of a life as old for her as the world. The shared divinity bent to their labor, their worship, their praise, where the horizon forest surrounded her on all sides, and the single road led into mystery and languor beyond, where the only knowledge of the cities and the world elsewhere came from tales and songs and the rare traveler stopping for an hour of talk at the well. For her father would not speak of it, and her mother told her it was illusion. Smiles with the women, gossip with the men, a few words, a few trinkets exchanged, and then off he went in his miraculous engine. Its rarity here held heralded by the gaping looks of the young Boys who ran after its ensign of dust, its wake of mud, its chorus of guttural coughing, and the stillness returned to the village, and the silence of old time. They shrugged their shoulders, smiled, and returned to the work in the, in the millet fields, plowed the earth with the oxen, gouged the ground with sticks, dropped the seeds three at a time, covered them over with the earth, treaded the water wheel to make the water run down the furrows, milked with the goats, tended the children, made the cakes, doing what must be done to live in this world of dust and green and mud and flowers, close to the stone of time, to the pebbles of the hours, cooled by the water of becoming, listening to the birds sorrowing in the night tree and sorrowing also watching the deer in search of a mate in the surrounding forest, and also desiring, reclining in the palm of the day and shielded by the hand of the day, resting in the quiet and peace of the silk of time, uncut by the knife of time, unseen yet not invisible to the dancing gods.
And then one day, a group of students from distant Lucknow appears. They stay in a small bungalow near the village, singing among themselves and dancing and shouting, raising havoc with the villagers, stalking over the fields, not caring whose vegetables they crush, whose fruit they steal, climbing trees and peeping into the windows, serenading the girls, joking with the men, harmless, mischievous, gallant. They get drunk every night and drive their new car over the countryside, honking its horn, flashing its headlights, terrifying the women and cows. They upset everything, raise chaos. Everyone stands staring, half indignant and half marveling at these irreverent scions of the future, these guffawing, innocent, half-crazy, cock-crowing men-boys. And one afternoon she abandons her chores and follows them on one of their light-hearted excursions into the forest, skittering behind them at a distance and hiding behind a tree whenever they are in danger of spying her. She is not yet fourteen. Her taut mouth, unwounded body on the verge of flowering. She follows them deep into the wood till they come to a pond. There they throw off their clothes and jump into the water, splashing and shouting, teasing each other. She hides her face a moment, then uncovers her eyes and gazes at the white, smooth, still untouched bodies of the boys as they dive into the water. She creeps closer, bending down in the grass and peering through the weeds at them as they swim, kicking the water to the air and hurling wackish insults at each other. Something in her belly begins to move, and she feels suddenly cold. An arrow of sunlight falls across her, and the locket at her throat gleams.